You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation or around the world. This is the Spectral Skull Session. I am your host, Dane. How many times have you heard people say something like the following? If UFOs are real, why are there no good photographs? If UFOs are real, why are they never observed or studied scientifically? Why are the people who witness UFOs always unemployed weirdos living in trailer parks? If there were scientific evidence for UFOs, the scientists would look into it. But they don't. Because there isn't. These are the things you hear people say who have no idea what they're talking about, because their understanding of UFOlogy comes from TV, Hollywood, and legacy media, where these topics have long been depicted as fringe by other people who themselves don't know anything about them. So it turns out it's all totally false. People do have good photographs of UFOs. Credible people have seen UFOs. And real scientists have done work on UFOs. In 1973, a group of trained observers, led by a physics professor, did a field study on a UFO flap happening in a Midwestern rural American community. Not only did they interview people who had witnessed UFOs, but they also made multiple sightings themselves. They made these sightings from the ground and the air, took photographs, and recorded instrumental observations. And their research was not so much covered up as it was simply ignored, this is the story of the Piedmont Lights, also known as the Southeastern Missouri UFO Flap of 1973. I learned about the 1973 UFO Flap only recently, was reminded again in 2023 when the Missouri legislature voted to make the small town of Piedmont, Missouri, the UFO capital of the state. Looking into the situation, I read that the town of Piedmont, in conjunction with the Missouri UFO Network, or MUFON, they were having a festival to celebrate the 50th anniversary of what they call the Piedmont Lights. So I hopped in my car April 22nd, and I drove two hours south to Piedmont to attend the festival myself in person. It took me up into the Missouri Highlands, which are more generally known as the Ozark Plateau or just the Ozarks. It took me into a particularly rugged patch of near wilderness called the St. Francois Mountain Region. Attending a series of MUFON presentations, I became aware of a whole body of research that contradicts the conventional wisdom about UFOs as things that are not being explored scientifically and not observed by credible witnesses. A little bit of background about the Piedmont area. So Piedmont is part of this St. Francois mountain range in Missouri. It's one of the smallest mountain ranges in the world. It only has eight mountains. 
part of this geographical highland region that they like to call the Ozark Highlands or Ozark Plateau. And um, the Ozarks span southern Missouri and northern Arkansas, and part of eastern Oklahoma. They have a tremendous back history of legends, folklore, and a wild mountain people culture, including their own folk magic traditions. So the St. Francois Mountains are just a mountainous patch inside an elevated highland. The highest mountain in the mountain range is Tom Sauk, itself known to be haunted, allegedly. Tom Sauk's only 1,700 feet above sea level, so you might question whether it's really a mountain, but it's quite a hill. The St. Francois region overlaps with Mark Twain National Forest, which is 1.5 million square miles of public land. The area is very rugged, although there have been European-style settlements, towns and villages, going back into the 18th century, when the territory was French. The French settled in the St. Francois Mountains to mine lead, and one of those old settlements with French roots is the small town of Piedmont, which has a population today of just 1,800 people. And back in 1970, it wasn't much different, just 1,900 people. When I drove to the St. Francois Mountains, it did feel like I was transitioning to another country. The sky cleared up. It went from being slightly cloudy to being perfectly clear. The hills are quite steep. Uh, you start to see pine trees as you go up. It starts to feel more alpine. And it kind of feels like you're driving into Europe. The Piedmont High School basketball team was making just such a drive that fateful February night when they saw it. It was a light in the sky. And they all noticed, and the coach saw it too, that they couldn't stop. They had to get home. After all, it's dark and you're driving through mountainous woodland. But when they turned off of Highway 60 onto the mountain roads, one of the students shouted, Hey coach, there's that thing we saw earlier. There it was. They say it was no more than 50 foot in the air and 200 foot away. It was four lights, red, green, amber, and white, suggestive of a single craft. Coach would later describe it as portholes, saying he could see the portholes on the craft. The story made its way into the local papers, and within a month, half of the town had seen a UFO. And the southeastern Missouri UFO flap of 73 had begun, and it became a regional sensation pretty quickly. The Air Force is said to have sent people to investigate. UFO celebrity Alan Hynek flew in and poked around. The town's hotel, the Waltrip, put up a marquee that read, Welcome UFO people, and Piedmont is UFO headquarters. At one point during the spring of 73, the local drive-in movie theater switched off their projectors in the middle of a showing because someone was shouting, They're back again! The audience stayed in their cars, relaxed, and watched an unscheduled intermission, a light show, courtesy of the unknown objects. This flap caught the attention of the chair of the physics department at Southeastern Missouri University. Two of his students came to see him during office hours to tell him they had both sighted a metallic flying saucer while driving through the region. So Professor Harley Rutledge decided to investigate. He would ultimately put together a team from Southeast Missouri University. It's called SEMO. They would call it Project Identification. In 1981, he would publish a book, Project Identification, the first scientific field study of UFO phenomena. Over the next decade, he would make repeated field trips from his home and the university in Cape Girardeau 
to the Piedmont area. Project Identification was able to directly observe unidentified lights on their very first weekend trip. Observing the lights at night, they thought maybe they were car headlights. But their binoculars suggested otherwise. Viewed through the binoculars, the lights remained unpaired. So they would just see like a dot here and a dot there. But they thought, well, with a headlight, well, you'd see two dots very close together. With a naked eye, you'd just see one dot. Maybe through the, head, through the binoculars, you'd see them as two not what they were seeing. A few months later, things got even better. Four investigators boarded a small airplane and took off from the Cape Girardeau airport, headed to the St. Francois region. They had a pilot, Dr. Rutledge, and two students from SEMO on board. Using a binocular, Dr. Rutledge spied 10 different lights in a single 45-second encounter. The rest of the craft was disappointed not to see anything, then, just minutes later, the pilot had his own close encounter with something he described as a white flashing light. It zipped by them so fast he exclaimed, quote, Man, that thing was really honking on. That thing was no airplane. End quote. At this point, Dr. Rutledge was hooked, and he committed to formalizing project identification, securing research funding, and getting commitments from other professors. He would succeed in bringing one other SEMO professor in for much of the research, and he says that over a hundred different academics, engineers, and students were involved in his multi-year research project. They would come up to the St. Francois Mountains for a week at a time or on the weekends, set up cameras on tripods, bring telescopes, binoculars, and other technical equipment. One night, they saw four lights in a very tight perpendicular formation. Red, white, white, red. These four colored lights gave everyone observing the creepy feeling that they were seeing the running lights for a single, gigantic craft. Using his degree in physics, as well as basic trigonometry, Rutledge was able to deduce that the lights had to be between 2,500 and 30,000 feet off the ground, and, therefore, this thing had to be at least 600 feet across, possibly as wide as a half mile. Now, I have to say, I did not understand how he thought the thing could be as far as 30,000 feet up, because he says that the cloud ceiling, according to the airport, the cloud ceiling was at 10,000 feet. So I would think the thing has to be below 10,000 feet. Even so, Dr. Rutledge remarks, there's no aircraft in existence that are 600 feet across. Another light observed on that same evening was seen to quickly disappear upwards into the sky at a speed that Dr. Rutledge calculated to be around 7,000 miles per hour. In the book, he talks about being puzzled because the light faded away as it rose. But he reasoned if the object was really moving 7,000 miles per hour, it should have been white or red hot from friction with the atmosphere. It also should have generated a sonic boom, neither of which occurred. On another night, they saw a triangle of red lights flying in tight formation and accompanied by a, quote, sizable blue-green glow off the right of the triangle, end quote. And this formation was accompanied by a sound. They said it sounded like a Maytag washing machine. This surprised them because they said they didn't think that engine could be strong enough to power a large vehicle. They also reported evidence of radio emissions 
between 54 and 216 megahertz. Their own electronic instruments corroborated the townspeople's reports that when the UFOs would fly overhead, they would have interference on particular TV channels. The team sent their instrumental findings to multiple Air Force signals experts, who all said the same thing. Your recordings are consistent with electronic jamming. Everything they observed as a research team, just balls of light or streaks of light or little dots in the distance. They would see balls of light changing color, balls of light appearing to shoot off of something, balls of light appearing to give off sparks, and balls of light in tight formations as if a single craft. One of the weirder, probably more controversial parts of the study, Dr. Rutledge insists they discovered a new phenomena in UFOlogy in which objects present as stars, but then later disappear or begin moving. He calls them pseudostars. He says it's like, it's like whatever it is is trying to hide among the stars, make you think it's a star. On another, even more controversial note, Rutledge expresses a high degree of confidence that the phenomena was interacting with his observation team. They witnessed the objects changing their behavior after a light was shown on them from the ground. They felt the objects would change trajectory to avoid their observation posts. What they would do is they would set up usually on top of one of these mountains. Remember I mentioned St. Francois Mountain Region has about eight mountains. So they would set up on little peaks and they would be looking for these things. They said it seemed like the things would come at us and then change direction to avoid flying directly overhead. At one point, they even moved from one mountain to another because it looked like all the good light balls were flying over the next mountain over. But when they finally got to their new location and got set up, they began seeing light balls flying over the mountain they had just left. After months of observations that yielded little more than bafflement, Dr. Rutledge started to be dragged into some of the more lurid aspects of UFOlogy when a local trucker reported having his face nearly burned off by an angry sky turnip. A truck driver was driving on I-55 near the Jackson exit, basically just outside of Cape Girardeau, not really in the St. Francois region, kind of on the edge of it. The man was driving his cross-country rig with his wife as his co-pilot. It was about 6.30 p.m. This man and his wife attested they saw what looked like a flying turnip. The man put his head out the window to get a better look, and wham, it projected a fireball right into his face. They had to pull over so his wife could drive because he was now blinded. They went to the hospital. The man's face was blistered, and he never fully recovered his eyesight. He had to give up truck driving. He had to sue for workers' compensation for being disabled on the job by a UFO. The insurance company suspected he had burned himself with a flare and then concocted the story of a UFO to cover up his self-harm. They brought in lawyers to allege just this, and the resulting court case actually turned on the question of whether UFOs exist. The lawyer for the trucker asked Professor Rutledge to testify in the case, and he realized he was about to become that UFO guy. But thankfully, he can report, quote, The party settled out of court. I was relieved because I realized that what is considered legal proof often differs considerably from what is considered scientific evidence. It did not appear likely 
that my participation would enhance my credibility in any way, end quote. Dr. Rutledge also mentions kind of offhandedly and without explanation that he released a report saying that he thought fraud was a possibility in the case. So it sounds like he was not really a believer in that particular incident, but this case was warmly recounted at the Piedmont Festival that I attended in April as the only case in American history of someone winning workers' comp for being injured by a UFO. Now, the research continued all through the 70s, although the sightings would decline after 73. Rutledge and the surrounding community continued, though, to be dragged further and further into the world of high strangeness that so often surrounds serious and sustained inquiry into the paranormal. He writes that he began to feel like the phenomena was playing with him and that certain events were staged specifically for him and him alone. For example, Dr. Rutledge and his wife would see a flying disc in 1975 from their own backyard, but it happened too quickly for him to get his camera equipment set up. And then around the same time, the chair of the SEMO Mathematics Department, not involved in project identification, would contact Rutledge to say he had also seen a flying disc in the area. That same winter, a local 14-year-old girl made headlines after she said she was chased by a flying disc, which flashed her in the eyes and rendered her blind. But thankfully in this case, after a good night's sleep, her vision returned with no other ill effects. Rutledge ended up writing in his book that in almost 10 years of studying UFOs, he documented 157 sightings of 178 credible UFOs that could not be explained as aircraft or natural phenomena. Only a handful of those sightings were captured on camera. Some happened too quickly to be photographed. In other cases, the lights just failed to appear on film. Thousands of reports by untrained or unexpert witnesses, including 60 by his own son, had to be excluded from the report because Rutledge refused to admit observations from anyone who was not properly credentialed or trained. So what was going on in southeastern Missouri in the 1970s? One hypothesis Rutledge considers was that the phenomena might be linked to secret helicopters being tested by McDonnell Douglas, an aerospace firm that was based in St. Louis during the Cold War. Rutledge says on some occasions they caught the lights moving faster than 500 miles per hour, which he says was too fast for a helicopter, so he ruled that out. He also, though, acknowledges military aircraft played a role in the excitement in the Piedmont area of that time. Apparently, around the same time the UFOs were first seen, the people of Piedmont positively identified a large number of low-flying military aircraft. One of Rutledge's own students had family high in the mountains. They reported during winter break they had seen military craft fly low in the valley actually below their own home, but so low and so close that Rutledge's student was able to see the pilot in the canopy of the craft as the aircraft went by. So Rutledge says he thought that the Air Force was actively investigating this stuff. He also reports that there was evidence the Air Force was using the St. Francois area as some kind of training ground. Uh, since the hilly landscape is similar to parts of Vietnam, and the Vietnam War lasted until 1975, they were actively training some of their Air Force people, you know, how to deal with hilly terrain. 
He quotes uh, an engineer employed in East St. Louis to the effect that a certain military subcontractor was known to test their radio altimeter at Tom Sauk Mountain. That's the highest mountain in the St. Francois mountain range. So there was military and military industrial complex type research taking place in the area at the time. St. Louis was a hotbed for the military industrial complex during the Cold War. And St. Louis is only about a two hour drive away from Piedmont. Although, now let me make a point here, though. It's a little bit of a weird synchronicity. Tom Sauk Mountain may be the highest point in Missouri on the highest mountain in the St. Francois Mountain Range. It is also well known to be haunted as hell. That mountain is said to be haunted by the spirit of a Native American woman who committed suicide. I've camped there both times. I camped either on or near the mountain. I experienced strange auditory phenomena in the evening, at night. And uh, it just has a spooky vibe. It's just, a, it's a spooky mountain. And so I think it's very strange that this uh, military industrial contractor was testing their equipment at this haunted mountain. So uh, another thing that Rutledge noted that I think is important, that I think most people overlook when they talk about this, he said the Piedmont area had notably poor radar coverage at that time. Basically, none of the existing civilian radar systems would give any coverage below 7,000 feet, not just because it was a rocky area. Remember, the, the highest point is only 1,700 feet. It's not that high, right? But um, really because the radar systems, there was one radar system in St. Louis, and it kind of, that was the edge of its coverage, was the St. Francois area. There was another radar system in Memphis, and St. Francois area was on the edge of its coverage too. So that area, you combine the fact that it was kind of on the edge and the fact that it's hilly, became a radar dead zone. Military, the military was known to have coverage down to 2,000 feet, but I was thinking that would be a good place to test secret aircraft, right? A place where you know people can't really observe. So reading this book, I was pushed towards the hypothesis that the flap might have been triggered by some kind of secret military craft or military industrial, you know, secret being tested in the mountains of Missouri. It's kind of a cool premise. It could be a great premise for a science fiction or horror film. But when I attended MUFON's presentations at the Piedmont UFO Festival in April 2023, I found out people are continuing to see the phenomena that Dr. Rutledge recorded. They have the same kinds of experiences even today. The lights move in weird ways. They often seem to be aircraft, but they have incorrect patterns of lights. People say they sometimes disguise themselves as stars. The flap never ended. And so these MUFON investigators, you know, they're volunteers who, they're volunteers, they pay dues, but then they get trained. They're kind of like a professional body in the sense that they, they make reports and they can talk about each other's work and they report their stuff to a central to the MUFON committee. So Missouri MUFON showed the audience exclusive footage they captured on their own field investigation to the region where they caught something legitimately strange. They had, um, they had lights in the sky, 
and the particular investigator, I don't want to say his name because I didn't get him on the record, but he was talking us through like that light there. That's a civilian aircraft. I called into the FAA and I confirmed, right? That light over there, that's a helicopter. And then he goes, but this thing here, like we couldn't pin that to anything. And it, the light, it was a much larger light. It was moving very quickly. It almost seemed to have like a arrow shape to it. And, you know, it was it was legitimately strange. And it's really cool that they caught that on video. And then as one MUFON investigator told the crowd, if you want to see a UFO in the area, just look up. So I came away from this festival in the mountains of Missouri with the sense that there was a real mystery taking place in the Ozark Highlands. Could it be aliens? Could it be, as Missouri's own Mac Tonys once wrote in a book titled Crypto Terrestrials, a breakaway civilization living in the, the mountains and the caves? Maybe. Um, but paranormal investigator Gregory Little has recently published a fascinating book arguing that some of these lights are generated by plasma. He thinks that there's a whole phenomena of like the whole like lights in the sky at night phenomena is some kind of electrical like or electrical phenomena that comes out of the earth in certain places. There's a fault nearby. There are mountains. People have substantially dug into these mountains. The mountains are full of minerals. I wouldn't be surprised if there is some meteorological phenomena that is just not understood by the human race right now, but is certainly worth exploring. I even think that some kind of uh, meteorological phenomena that comes out of the ground, an electrical type energy, could explain the very weird vibe and the reputed haunted nature of Tom Sauk Mountain. Maybe that thing's like an antenna and, um, you know, there's a charge coming out of it or something like a charge. And that that's just why people, including myself, when they go there, feel like it's a little bit weird and have weird things happen to them. I think the larger takeaway is that these weird things are really all around us. Wherever you live, there's probably a hot spot of interesting, unexplained aerial phenomena near you. And if any of us want to go out and see it, it sounds like all we need to do is just look up. So until next time, thank you for listening. I have been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane.